If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 18 today. Luke, Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. As you're turning there, um, it happens to every single parent. It happens to every single one of them. They assume that their child is good at something when they're not. They assume it could be sports. There's a lot of dads out there and they, and they assume that their son is going to follow in their magnificent athletic ability. And they throw their son into baseball and soccer and basketball and football in the hopes that their son will be the athletic prowess that they know them to be. And yet, it doesn't always work out that way, now does it? Nevertheless, the dad, as he looks upon his son, he still thinks, no, 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 he's a starter. He's number one on the team. He's the best player. And he goes to the coach and says, you, you need to play him more. You need to start him. You need to put him at point guard. You need to bat him clean up. You need to make him quarterback. And the coach just looks at him and says, I'm not going to do that. You're in willful denial about your son's athletic ability. He's not very good at this sport. He's going to ride the bench a little bit. It happens in the world of politics. Politicians on the, on the left and on the right, on all sides of the spectrum, they hear the information that they want to hear, and then they block all the information that they don't want to hear. They love certain elements of the media. Oh, yes, yes, you see this report and you see what that journalist said and did you read that in the newspaper? And then they willfully deny other articles and journalists and news outlets that speak ill of them or don't write so favorably of them. It happens in sports with our children. It happens in politics. It happens throughout life. Willful denial of information that we know to be true, and yet we suppress it. And we say, ah, I don't want to pay attention to that. My son should be quarterback, period, even though he can't throw a ball. The title of today's message is Good and Bad Willful Denial. I've spoken about the bad. There's bad willful denial when we take information and we filter it in such a way to reach certain ends and only those ends. Most of the time, when you are willfully denying something, you are doing something bad. However, and in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9 today, we're going to see some bad willful denial. But on the flip side, as we come to the end of this portion in God's Word today, we're also going to see one part of the Christian life in which willful denial is a fantastic thing. Stand with me if you will. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Luke chapter 9, 18 to 26. And it happened, as he, Jesus, was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? 
And so the, the disciples, they answered and said, uh, Some say you're John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that you're one of the old prophets who has risen again. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And Jesus strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. You may be seated. Eighteen and nineteen again. And it happened, as Jesus was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. We want to jump ahead real fast to, the, to the, the stuff that seems very substantive. Don't lose sight of the beginning of verse 18, what Jesus is doing. He is alone, and he's praying. He is alone, and he's praying. In solitude, by himself, probably um, off and away from the crowds, out in nature, when was the last time you prayed quietly alone, just you and the Lord? When was the last time you, you sought a time of being in solitude and in quietness? Now, the world is busy. <laughs> South Orange County is busy, and you just started the fall season. Parents, you've just sent all your kids off to school, or you're getting school ready to go. Um, some of you have already gotten colds this fall. How pathetic is that? I had the sniffles a couple days ago, but thankfully it's gone. I mean, we're, we're all of a sudden, we're in a new season. All of these changes are coming. The world's spinning a whole lot faster. Jesus found time to be alone, to be quiet, to be in solitude. In the Gospels, he does this over and over and over and over again. And we read it, and we just we keep going because we want to get to... Well, what's the substantive conversation or what's the good, is there any good doctrine to talk? Well, look what Jesus is doing in his methods. He's pausing often, quieting his heart, being alone with the Father. 
Jesus couldn't get away very often, though, like this. And even here, his disciples immediately go out to find him. It says that his disciples joined him. <laughs> doesn't indicate that they joined him to pray, but they, as they, as they uh, enter into the conversation here, Jesus actually turns and speaks to them. It's not surprising, too, what Jesus says to them. Um, and I, I would argue that it, it really does come from a place of being alone in solitude with the Father. Because when we are alone and, and quiet before God, we begin to get perspective. Um, we begin to pause and reflect on our day and on the days ahead. We get perspective about what's truly important. And so it's not surprising when the disciples interrupt Jesus that his first comment to them is a very substantive question. He asks them, Who do the crowds say that I am? This uh, who is Jesus question has been rising up in the Gospel of Luke. It's been rising up. Uh, look, if, you, if, you, if you're holding a Bible, uh, look at uh, chapter 7, verse 49. You'll see that the people at the table in which Jesus was dining were asking amongst themselves, Who is this man who forgives sins? And then a little bit later on in Luke, in chapter 8, verse 25, he, he calms the storm. And the disciples, they look, look at him. He just calmed the wind and calmed the waves. And the storm went quiet. And the disciples look upon him and say, Who is this man? The wind and the waves obey him? And then in chapter 9, this chapter presently that we're in, verse 9, Herod is questioning aloud, Who is this man? Who is this of whom I hear such things, Herod wondered. Who, who, who is Jesus? Luke is uh, weaving a theme here in his gospel. Well, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, are actually uniquely poised to answer this question. For they had just returned from a trip all throughout Israel. They had returned in, at the earlier part of chapter 9. We studied it last week. They had gone out into Israel and they had gone out with, they, they didn't carry anything with them and they just went out in the power of the Spirit and with the message of the kingdom of God and they went from town to town to town throughout all of Canaan proclaiming the person and message of Jesus Christ. They interacted with hundreds if not thousands of people on their journey. And so the disciples, when Jesus asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? The disciples were ready for this. They were poised. They knew exactly, they had the pulse of the people of Israel. They didn't need to take a poll. They had heard it firsthand. And so they told Jesus. They answered and said to him, verse 19, they say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you are you must be John the Baptist, Jesus. But other people say, you must be Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet of old who, who went up in a chariot of fire into heaven and he's come back. And, and others, they might mention other prophets too. Some say uh, different prophets of old. That, if, that you epitomize them, that you've come back in their person or in their spirit. Well, the implications 
of the crowd's answers are very significant, aren't they? Think about it for just a second. The, you know, we, well, in, uh, in America, we're constantly taking polls, right? We take polls. <laughs> who likes the president? Who doesn't like the president, you know? Who's going uh, who's gonna to win in 2016? Who's not going to win in 2016? We like to take polls all the time, especially in politics, sometimes in sports and in other areas of life, social, social life. Uh, we're always taking a poll. Well, think about the implications of this poll that the disciples had verifiable evidence about. They had actually spoken to people who had asked them, is he John the Baptist? Is your leader, is he Elijah returned? Think about the implications of these ideas that are rolling around in Israel. If Jesus was John the Baptist... That means the people in that day and age, and a good percentage of them were swirling around this rumor, the people believed that despite the fact that Herod had killed John the Baptist, that John the Baptist had come back to life. That was a rising view in Israel as Jesus began his earthly ministry. That John the Baptist had returned to life after being beheaded. Either John has returned, or, or some other prophet has returned, they said. Some other prophet, risen again, as it speaks of in verse 19. Though some scholars will admit that that term there, uh, at the end of verse 19, and the old prophets has risen again, that could be in the spirit of that they've, uh, they've risen up in the, sp- Jesus has risen up in the spirit of an old prophet. But nevertheless, its close proximity to John indicates that they really genuinely believed, many people in Israel believed, that Jesus Christ was the resurrection of some prophet of old. What about Elijah? Elijah, well, in in the mind of the Jew in the first century, Elijah wasn't dead anyhow. Elijah never died. He was taken up, as as you read in the book of Kings. He was taken up to heaven, transcended, transported, better term, straight into heaven. And they expected Elijah to return because in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 we read that at the beginning, at the onset of the end of days, Malachi, the prophet, through the word of the Lord, through Malachi said that Elijah would come and would be a, a, a precursor to the end of days. And so if the the rumor was spreading about that Jesus was Elijah returned, then a good percentage of the people believed in that moment that they were living in the very last days. Whether John or Elijah or some other prophet, either way, buzz is swirling around Israel. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Well, the crowd's ideas, um, close, but no cigar. And Jesus knows that, and he, so he presses the matter a little bit further, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, verse 20, he presses the matter, look at verse 20, he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? You've gone throughout all of Israel, You've heard the rumor swirling. You've, you've taken a poll and the pulse of the people. 
You know what everyone else is saying. Now I want to know what you say. What do you think? Who do you say I am? And Peter, bold Peter, he rises up. Peter answered and said, You're the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Christ. Christos in Greek. Uh, Messiah in Hebrew. It, what's interesting about this term, and if you follow the development of language, uh, th- th- this is one of the best words to consider its, uh, its evolution of sorts throughout the centuries and millennia. You see, because Messiah, or in Greek Christos, Messiah originally was simply an adjective. Way back uh, in the uh, uh, millennia before the time of Christ, uh, Messiah was an adjective. It meant uh, anointed. You're anointed. You have a special anointing upon you. You're an anointed person. An adjective. Over time, though, particularly during the time that the Greeks came and took a look at the Old Testament scriptures and began to translate it into Greek, which is known as the Septuagint, by the time of the Septuagint, that term, Messiah, which was an adjective, came to, be, came to evolve into really a substantive noun. All of a sudden, it went from merely meaning anointed to an anointed one an anointed person. And then, over a few more centuries after that, the term began to take a little bit more shape. It went from anointed to an anointed one, in a substantive way, to the anointed one, a definitive generic term. And then even further after that, as the New Testament begins, all of a sudden, this term Messiah, and now in Greek, Christos, had evolved from an adjective to a substantive noun to a specific, the anointed one. All of a sudden, it had culminated, if you will, into a term that definitively described, specifically and individually described, the hoped-for anointed one of Israel. Speaking of one individual that Israel was looking forward to. And by the time of the New Testament, and by the time of Paul's writings, Jesus, the Christ, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, that term had come full swing to epitomize the person of Jesus Christ. So when Peter says... You are the Christ of God. He is saying that Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the hoped for one of Israel in whom all of these people have been waiting for. Sent from God to deliver our people. You are the Christ of God. Well, it's here that, uh, that the, gospels, uh, the gospel writers take very different turns um, right in this moment, at this juncture in the story. At this juncture in the story, Matthew veers off over here. And in Matthew chapter 16, as he describes this story, Matthew begins then to uh, describe Jesus' response to Peter. And P- uh, when, when, when Peter says, you are the Christ of God, uh, Matthew says that Jesus turned to Peter and said, you know, uh, 
Well done, Simon Barjona, for this has not been revealed to you through flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on in Matthew to, to extol Peter and to lift him up and to say, Peter, because of this, you will rise up and you will be one of the great leaders of the church, which is about to be born as a result of my kingdom and my, my ministry here. Peter, you will rise up and you will be the rock of the church. Well, that's Matthew's, how he kind of deviates at this point in the story. Luke pivots in a slightly uh, different way. They're describing two sides of the same coin, same story, but they're just looking at it from slightly different angles. In Luke, we see Jesus say something considerably different. We see Jesus telling Peter and the disciples to be quiet. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. Peter has just said, You are the Christ of God. A great confession. And Luke narrates in in verse 21, And he, Jesus, strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Verse 21, it says, Jesus strictly warned and commanded them. Literally in Greek, he com- commanding, he ordered them. It's a very emphatic uh, set of uh, verbs there. He says, under no uncertain terms, you are to be quiet about what you just said, Peter. Peter has just called him the Christ of God, the Messiah. You are the hoped for, awaited one. The anointed of God. The Messiah has come. And Jesus says, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Well, why the silence? That's a, that's a question um, throughout all the, all the synoptic gospels. Why the silence? Why does Jesus shush the disciples, Peter, after indicating in Matthew, by the way, that he extolled Peter for that statement. So he extolled him, and then later on he silenced him at the same time. Why the silence? Well, neither the crowds nor the disciples fully comprehended who Jesus was. They all, and and many of you know this, but for some of you that don't, they all in that day and age, disciples, crowds alike, they were all expecting a triumphant Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah who would be king of Israel, a man of great military prowess, a crusader who would overthrow Rome, overthrow Caesar, overthrow the Herods, restore the kingdom to Israel. And that was not Jesus' mission. At least not on his first coming to earth. That was not his mission. Jesus' mission was a lot different than that in his first advent. And he speaks of it here for the very first time in the Gospel of Luke. He speaks about the kind of Messiah that he is going to be. And he says in verse 22, that the Son of Man 
is not going to act in a way that you wanted him to, Peter and disciples and crowds. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ of God is not going to act as you expected him to, Jesus describes. He says, instead, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He must be killed and raised the third day. Here again is where Matthew pivots from Luke. Matthew, right after this statement, pivots to what? Anybody remember? What does Peter do? What does Peter do right at this moment as Jesus says, no, 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 the Son of Man is going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. Peter, Peter rises up and says what? Not so, Lord. He says, you're not going to do that. Read it in Matthew 16. You're not going to do that. That's ridiculous. That's not what Messiah does. That's not what Christ does. That's not what the Christ of God does. Matthew pivots at this juncture in Matthew 16. He pivots over to Peter, rebuking Jesus. Right after Peter called him the Christ of God. And Jesus turns to Peter and says what to him? Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Right after extolling Peter, he puts Peter in his place. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Luke decides to, um, for his purposes in his narrative, he doesn't go Matthew's route. Instead, he continues on. He continues to describe the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be and the kind of follower that Jesus is looking for. The popular conception of Messiah was much, much different than what Jesus says in verse 22. The interesting thing is, and this, is, this comes back to that willful denial, the interesting thing is, is that the Old Testament prophets had hinted time and time and time again that in fact what Jesus was about to do and embark upon in his first advent, that what Jesus was about to do, embarking on a life of suffering, rejection, and death, What's interesting is that the Old Testament hinted at it over and over and over again. And yet, there was willful denial of that information throughout all of Israel. Read Isaiah 53. That's one of the clearest examples in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, in which the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Christ, comes and is not triumphant, but comes in weakness, suffering, and death. They missed it. Willful denial. A whole group of people, like the parent denying that their son can't throw a football. Yes, he can. He needs to be quarterback. No, you're denying the obvious. So also here, among the crowds, among the disciples, Jesus was looking at them and saying, don't you know you're denying the obvious? The Old Testament has hinted at this time and time again, I am coming to suffer and die. They missed it. You know, on your outline there, it was there in the Old Testament at the bottom of page 1. It was there in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, yet they missed it. 
They missed it. And they missed it time and time again throughout the Gospels. And I ask us in our generation, if, if they missed it, if the Jewish people missed it, having the oracles of God, having the Old Testament right in front of them, having the prophets to literally look upon and see, having stories from their grandfathers and grandmothers about Jeremiah and Isaiah and the prophets of old, having heard it all and having looked at Jesus face to face, you wonder how in the world do they miss this? How in the world do they overlook these portions of Scripture? We wonder aloud, how did they miss it? And yet I ask us, well, if they missed it, If that generation missed it, what are we missing? Because, uh, I don't know about you, but my my grandparents didn't tell me about stories in which they physically were with the prophets of old. I I have to rely on the Word, and thankfully I can rely on the Word of God. But I didn't have eyewitness testimony down, passed down through my family. I didn't have Jesus standing before me. I didn't see John the Baptist doing what he did in the Jordan. And they missed it. They had all the information and missed it. How much more so might we be missing something? What is our generation missing? You know, sometimes we we approach the word and we think, ah, I've... I think I've covered it all. I think think I've got it all down. I think I've got my theology in a nice tight little box it's been wrapped up nice it's got a bow on it nice and tight i think i'm done i think i figured it out no way you don't have a clue and neither do i about the things that we might be missing when you read scripture look for what you're missing uh john varela you hear john i know you were here i I saw you somewhere he might be with the kids right now john varela pointed out something to me that i missed we were talking about um the Christians in Iraq. And uh, we were talking about the horrible plight of the Christians in Iraq, how they're running for their lives from uh, these Muslim extremists. And uh, we were just lamenting their, the plight of those people and how awful it is. We were talking about their, how they're dying. They're crucifying some of them. Uh, they're beheading Christians in Iraq, in Syria, and in other parts of the Middle East. People are being beheaded regularly. And John pointed out to me, he says, you remember in Revelation 20? And I said, yeah. He said, remember in verse 4? And I opened it up, I'm looking at it, yeah. He says, read, read what it says there. And we read it together. This is, at, this is at the onset of the Millennial Kingdom. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. John the Apostle speaks specifically of beheaded Christians. Beheadings prior to the rise of this most recent group, ISIS. Beheadings in the Middle East, not a very common practice. Happened, not very common. For John 
the apostle, to pull this out as an aspect that he saw in his revelations, for him to point out that he saw those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Christ, for him to pull that out and, and write it down in the Word of God means that this must have been a substantive group of people. This must have been something that stood out to John, the apostle. And so also, John Varela, my friend, pointed out to me, and I had overlooked it, he said, I wonder if these beheadings are going to increase with greater frequency and be a precursor toward what we read about in Revelation 20, verse 4. I missed it. I think he might be right. What are we missing? That's just one example. That's just one example in Scripture where you overlook it so fast and you miss what God is trying to teach you. Let's pray for those Christians in Iraq, folks. In our bulletin today, if you will read it after the message, we have a persecution alert about those Christians. Take that home. Read it. Pray for them. What are we missing? If we are to become the most effective witnesses that we can be for Jesus Christ, we must consider the whole counsel of God pouring over Scripture so as not to miss anything. Reading the Word and letting the Word read us so that we don't miss what God wants to say. The disciples needed to understand who Messiah really was and what He would do before they could effectively proclaim Jesus as the Christ of God. And so Jesus quieted them. He said, be quiet until you learn this about me. Be quiet until your orthodoxy, your doctrine is correct. Usefulness in God's economy requires good doctrine. It requires orthodox thinking about Jesus and about God's plan. It requires good doctrine to be useful to God, but it also requires something else. It requires not just orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, that is to say good practice, right practice. And that's what Jesus addresses next. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. And then he said to them all, after having spoken about his suffering and death, he says, and these are the kinds of people that I'm looking for in my world, Jesus says. And then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's glory and of the holy angels. Orthodoxy, know who I am, Jesus says. And then you can be a good witness, but with that, orthopraxy, good practice, good discipleship. And this is what he speaks to now in verse 23. And let it be said, let it be said, at the onset of verse 23, this is so important, so important, because how often this gets mis miscommunicated, preached poorly, very poorly. Let it be said at the onset of verse 23 that this is not a prescription for how to become a believer. 
Verse 23 is a prescription for how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not for how to enter the kingdom of God, which comes by faith, but how to go on to a life of maturity and discipleship and wholeness and completeness in Christ. Jesus has already given another prescription for eternal salvation and to become a believer. He gave that in places like Luke 7 verse 50. When he told the woman who had just bathed his hair in precious ointment, he looked upon her and said, your faith has saved you. It was her faith that saved her. He said in Luke 8 verse 12 that the reason the devil takes away the gospel from, uh, from, the, from the soil is because he doesn't want people to look upon the gospel and believe it and be saved. So Jesus has just said twice in a very short amount of time prior in Luke that the way to be saved eternally, to become a believer, is to have faith in Christ, to believe the gospel. The condition for becoming a believer is perhaps most clear in the Gospel of John in which it says time and time again, whosoever believes in Christ has eternal life. John 3.16 Being a believer and being a disciple are not the same thing. We should not conflate the two. Luke 9.23 and John 3.16 are not the same thing. We become a Christian the moment we believe. The moment we believe in Christ, we become a disciple through ongoing, day-by-day process. We become a Christian and pass from death to life the instant we believe, John 5.24. We become a disciple through much time, practice, and discipline. We become a Christian and receive the peace of God the moment we are justified by faith, Paul says in Romans 5.1. The moment, instantaneous. We become a disciple, not instantaneously, but of, um, it's a matter of progressive sanctification in which the Spirit of God makes incremental changes to our heart and mind as we commit to Him each day. So the order is clear. First we believe and experience salvation, life that can never be lost, and then, then in response to that salvation, looking at that salvation, seeing what Jesus did for us on the cross and the suffering that he endured for us, witnessing that and what he did for us, we go on in motivation to a life of discipleship, taking seriously the path that our Lord took for himself. Make no mistake though, while the conditions of eternal salvation are simple and clear, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The conditions of being a disciple of Christ are difficult and hard. Luke 9.23, those words are not easy. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let's unpack that meaning just a bit. If anyone desires to come after me, that is to say to follow me, to pursue me, let him deny himself, 
That's a little bit passive in the translation. Let him deny himself. Actually, in the Greek, it's more the idea of a, of a, a thrusting imperative. He's saying he must deny himself. This person, whoever wants to follow me, they must deny themselves. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to give up your will, to give up your demands for how you conduct your life, to give up your demands for how you want others to treat you, to not be self-centered or self-focused, but to be selfless, putting yourself absolutely last. Your wants, your desires, your needs, putting them all last. Denying yourself. Boy, we talked about the, the denial of, of the information that Jesus was a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The people missed it. They denied it. Terrible denial. Willful denial of information plain in front of them in the Old Testament. And here Jesus says, here's the good denial. Here's the good willful denial. Deny you. Deny yourself. You want to deny something, don't deny my word. Deny you, your will, your selfishness. And take up your cross. Take up your cross daily to the ear of the Jew and the Greeks that would later hear it. These words were crazy. The cross was a sign of of contempt, of rejection, unclean, criminal. At minimum, the cross meant rejection of the world. At maximum, it meant physical death due to treason, criminality. Jesus says, take up your cross on a daily basis. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. These words are impossible. Impossible to achieve without the indwelling Holy Spirit. But with his power, as we lean on the Spirit's power and the power of His Word, we can slowly and steadily make progress in the glorious life of discipleship and sanctification. And you might be wondering, glorious? What kind of glorious life is that? I'm, I'm, I'm reading this, Neil, verse 23. That doesn't look glorious. That looks awful. And you know what? I agree with you. That looks awful. I don't want to live like that. I, I read if I, yeah, I was I was I had a chance to witness to a neighbor uh, a few days ago. He he had no concept of who Jesus was, none at all. Uh, he uh, had just had very little interaction with Christianity at all. And I was beginning to describe to him what what Christianity is and and what it what it means. And um, and I spoke about the suffering of Christ. I, I, didn't, I didn't turn to Luke 9.23 quite then. I wanted to give him a little bit of time to kind of ease into it a little bit there. Um, but had, I, had, I shown, had he asked me, hey, what's Christianity? And I would have said, Luke 9.23, read this. Doesn't it look wonderful? He'd have looked at me and thought, what are you talking about? Like, that's, that's crazy talk. Why would anybody want to do this? And you know what? He would be right. Unless, unless... There was some incentive. 
unless there was something that could mitigate the awful nature of living that way. My kids, we often play this, uh, it, it happens daily, where uh, the, Bennett wants to watch uh, Chima, which is ridiculous. Uh, it's, a, it's a Lego show called Chima. It's basically just a, a ploy to convince the children that they need to go and buy Legos. So it's, it's anyway, don't let your kids watch Chima. Bennett wants to watch Chima, and Mallory wants to watch, you know, what does she want to watch? My Little Pony, honey? What does she want to watch? Oh, I was asking Scott. I don't think Scott knows what Mallory wants to watch. Prin- anything princess. So we have Chima and princess. And every day we say to them, Bennett, Mallory, can you agree on something? Can you compromise? And they just, oh, no. I, we don't want to compromise. I want to watch Chima. I want to watch princess. Chima, princess, Chima, princess. And they, they fight for their will. Until, until they learned that there are incentives to compromise. We started to incentivize the one who would compromise. Subtly, quietly, little special tickets that we would put in their jar, which later on they could trade in for prizes. And pretty soon, it, didn't, it doesn't happen without failure. Don't get me wrong here. But one of them remembers, ah, oh, there, might, there might be an incentive if I put my sister first. There might be an incentive if I put my brother first. And they begin to learn to work together and to deny themselves and put the other first. Well, Luke 23, Luke 9.23, that's an awful way to live, unless there's an incentive, and there is. Look at verse 24, 25, and 26. We close out with these verses. Jesus says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. You say, are there incentives here? Yes, there are. There's one negative incentive and there's one positive incentive. And they're clear as day. The first, a negative incentive. Jesus says at the onset of verse 24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. This is one of the greatest paradoxes of all time. My my father-in-law would call this a paradox principle. Incentive number one, write this down in the back of your outline. The self-obsessed life ends in destruction, loss, and shame. The self-obsessed life ends in destruction, loss, and shame. There is a sense of inevitability here, Jesus writes. Jesus says in verse 24. Complete inevitability. If you are self-willed, if you're egocentric, you will lose. You try to save your life as it is, your egoistic, self-centered, self-focused life, you will lose it. He goes on to say, you'll be destroyed. You'll be ashamed. It's inevitable. That's a negative incentive. Uh, looking upon it, you, you, you see that and you go, I, I don't want that. I don't want to be destroyed, experience shame, experience loss. For the unbeliever, such destruction includes their very condemnation. Hell. That's their destruction. 
When Jesus returns for the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verse 11, you can read about it on your own. Don't just think this is just for the unbeliever, though. This is for the believer, too. Not danger of hellfire, mind you, but destruction in Greek is a term that's often used to describe not only the fires of hell, but also earthly loss and earthly decay and, 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 and re- reaping what you sow in this life and in the life to come, by the way. For the believer, such destruction is described in places like 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, in which the believer's works are tested by fire and are found wanting and they burn up. But what does Paul say about that person? He says such a person will be saved, yet so is through fire. Not a loss of heaven, but a loss of reward or of a reward that uh, is notably depreciated as a result of their earthly life, as a result of a self-willed life. There's destruction, loss, and shame for the unbeliever and for the believer if they go that path. Incentive number two, a positive incentive, is given at the end of verse 24. But whoever loses his life, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. Incentive number two on your outline, the self-denying life ends in salvation, deliverance, commendation, and reward. The self-denying life ends in salvation, deliverance, commendation, and reward. Well, it says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We'll get to that in a moment. How do I get to commendation and reward? Well, it's the antithesis of what he's just said in the negative. He said, if you have a self-obsessed life, you will be ashamed before God at the end of your days. There won't be reward, there'll be shame. So on the flip side of that, Jesus is indicating there that there's commendation, there's reward, there's hope for the one that does the opposite of this. What about the term save there? A lot of people would, would pause and time out and say, well, you know, Neil, you said that verse 23 is not a prescription for eternal salvation, but, but, pastor, it says right there in verse 24, the very next verse, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it That's right. It does say whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The Greek word there is a Greek word sozo. Same Greek word used for save throughout so much of the New Testament. But the hyphen that I've put there and the term deliverance that you've written there is so critically important, especially in the Gospel of Luke. We've already made mention of it. I'm not going to go back to previous portions of Luke. We've already made mention of the fact that that term sozo, saved in the Gospel of Luke, has a wide variety of meanings. It can mean eternal salvation. It can mean blessing. It can mean health. It can mean rescue. It can mean deliverance. And one New Testament scholar, Frank Turk, argues, he's done a comprehensive study of the term sozo in the New Testament. He's identified 109 different uses of the Greek word sozo, meaning saved. And in his assessment, Turk argues that over 60% of the time, 60%, the majority of the time, when the Greek word sozo is used, it doesn't merely mean eternal salvation but that it goes on to mean earthly deliverance, health, blessing, hope. 
Rescue, deliverance, keeping safe, preserving, curing, making well. So often when Jesus heals someone, it says that they're saved. They were saved. They were rescued. They were delivered. And so here in the context of Luke 9.24, Jesus is not speaking again of the fires of hell in verse 24. He's not suggesting that this is the prescription to avoid hell, that you must deny yourself in order, in order to avoid the, the fires of hell. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You must lose your life or else you're not a Christian. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Instead, what he's suggesting, as he's been suggesting throughout this portion of the gospel, is that the person who lives the suffering life, the person, the, the person who lives the life that denies oneself, that gives oneself up, and puts all their desires and their wants to the back, to the last, to the end. That person, the self-denying person, their life, both on, in this earth and in the life to come, will be a life of sweet salvation, deliverance, reward, health, blessing. And yes, of course, eternal life. But that's a given to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But going on to a life of discipleship, if you want an abundant experience of everlasting life, Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. If you want the abundant life, Jesus says, here's your incentive. Here's your incentive for living the life of Luke 9.23. If you don't, your life will end in destruction, loss, and shame. Guaranteed. If you do, deny yourself. You will experience salvation, deliverance, commendation, and reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to uh, willfully, willfully deny something. We want to deny ourselves. We don't want to make the mistake of those in ancient Israel who denied your word, who missed it, missed a huge portion of the person of who Messiah was going to be. We don't want to make that mistake, God. We do not want to willfully deny your word. Keep us mindful of all of it, God. Every bit of it. That we would not miss something. And we've learned, God, what we will deny today. And that is ourselves. And that is a very hard thing to do, God. We are selfish by nature. We are stubborn and obstinate. We like it when we're number one. We like making demands, having all of our wants and needs covered. God, help us to look upon these incentives that you've given to us to become a disciple. You've not just told us to deny ourselves for no reason. You've promised us, Lord, that there is a sweet, sweet blessing to the Christian that will not only go on to, be to believe in you and your son by faith, but who will go on to a life of denying themselves and following you. Lord, help us to catch hold of those incentives that they'd sit down deep in our soul and that we would be motivated to live obediently knowing that you will commend us, you will reward us, you will give us deliverance and great blessing, both in this life 
and the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.